give the Lord a great big hallelujah and you may be seated get comfortable because I got a whole lot to tell you today Uli Wiesel was a survivor of the Holocaust and went on to become a renowned journalist who wrote about his experiences in the death camps of World War II. When he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1986, he said these words, and they're words that every one of us today must learn to live by, and here they are. I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. declared that our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that really matter. It was Winston Churchill who once said, when the eagles are silent, <laughs> the parrots begin to jabber. And today I too must say I can be silent no more. I must speak and I must speak now because our times demand it. Our history compels it. Our future requires it. And more than anything else, Almighty God is still watching. For decades, I have labored in Christian ministry across this nation. By God's grace, I built a great church of thousands and preached the message of Jesus Christ literally around the world by the miracle of television. I've taught the truth in millions of Americans' homes. I've preached in stadiums where crowds gathered hours in advance to hear the answer to the question their souls long to have answered. I've been privileged to feed the hungry and to teach the young, to influence the powerful and to stand up to be seen and speak loud to be heard on behalf of righteousness. But this is not why I speak now, nor do I speak because faith has become the consuming interest of our generation. Only the sadly uninformed would fail to know that since September 11th, 2001, our country has raised a great spiritual chorus of desperation in a land where it was once thought rude to discuss religion in public, where men spoke seriously of the death of God. Questions of faith now rule the public discourse from Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ to the award-winning rock group Evan Essence singing Wake Me Up Inside from the Nothing I've Become or from a Newsweek article asking Who is Jesus? Our generation is seeking as few others have done in history even distortions of the truth like the popular novels The Da Vinci Code and The Rule of Four show and give rise to the fact that people are grasping out for spirituality at any price. This I know, but this is not why I speak. Instead, I speak because we have come to a moment in time when the possibilities of this nation are so great, when the crises in this nation are so pressing, and when the voices of wisdom in this nation seem so few that 
not to speak would be a violation of a sacred trust. Indeed, it may be that now, at the dawn of a brand new millennium, our nation has the potential to become what our fathers dreamed. But if this is true, it's no wonder that this dream is being attacked from without and dismantled from within. As President George W. Bush said in his moving speech at the National Cathedral just days after the tragedies of September 11th, the commitment of our fathers is now the calling of our time. And he was right. It is time to renew our fathers' commitment. It is time to reclaim our lost heritage. There is much to be gained by a return to the discarded values of the past. If you believe that, give God praise and glory. I believe you believe as I do that it is time to remake our nation into the just and compassionate and noble society that it was meant to be. I therefore will be silent no more. How can I remain silent when the founding faith of our nation is driven from the marketplace of ideas? How can I sit quietly by while the very words our founding fathers intended to protect faith are now used to destroy faith owing to a horror perversion of language and law the same first amendment of our constitution that bars government from restricting belief has been used to drive Christianity from the national public square we are told our society ought to be secular no prayer in our schools no God in our pledges no faith in our politics and all this we are to accept from the hands of activist judges who repeatedly overturn the will of the people as expressed through their elected representatives. No, I will not allow such outrages to go unmarked, nor will I stand. You might as well give God glory. I like this. Nor will I stand silently by in embarrassed silence while old faiths and new agendas rush in to fill the void left by a supposedly discarded Christianity. I will rail against the idea that the God of Christianity and the God of Islam are the same being. I will sound the alarm about the agenda of America's tortured homosexual population. I will rail about Hollywood's perversion of love and sex and about the murder of the old and the unborn alike. And I will not be silent until the meat. I will not be silent until the media's high-tech persecution of my faith is exposed and until the very schools that my tax dollars support are no longer the enemy of everything I teach my children to believe. Oh, I know what they'll say. I know what they'll say. <laughs> They'll say that these are the same issues that Bible thumpers have been complaining about for decades. They'll say that religious people only care about protecting their own beliefs. But they could care less about the rest of society as a whole. But they misjudge me. And I believe they misjudge you. <laughs> 
because they don't know where we've been. They don't know what we believe, nor do they understand that I intend to speak boldly to both sides of the political spectrum, to both the believing and the non-believing, to both the socially conscientious and the economically conscientious. I intend to take issues that traditionally belong to the right and commend them to the left. I intend to take the concerns of the secular and commend them to the religious. In short, I intend to offend everybody. In fact, I suppose you could say I have become an equal opportunity offender. And on this day, on this day, I have chosen that I will no longer be silent in the face of the rushing tide of racial hatred in our nation. It is a serious indictment that Sunday morning is still the most racially segregated hour of the week. It is an indictment of our culture that young black males are more likely to be shot more likely to be imprisoned, more likely to be unemployed or killed by a disease than any other group in America. Recent surveys show that racial hatred is not on the decline in America, it is on the increase. This is not, I got to underscore this, this is not a liberal issue. This is not a conservative issue it is an issue for all patriots, for those who believe in an America built on the content of a man's character, not based on the color of his skin. <laughs> so now you understand that I can be silent no more. Not until the land of our father's dream arises. Not until we become the truly kind and noble society we were fashioned to be. I will not be silent until the commitment of our fathers truly does become the calling of our time. There is a chance. A chance for a great and righteous nation to emerge in the years ahead. I pray for it. I hope you do. I hunger for it. I long for it. I long for our children and our grandchildren to know the America of such a dream. Now you understand why until the land of promise emerges, I will be silent no more. Somebody shout, I will be silent. Come on, shout it. Silent no more. Now, regarding the church's posture in regard to race, First, allow me to quote from A Knock at Midnight by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I quote, it is also midnight within the moral order. At midnight, colors lose their distinctiveness and become a sullen shade of gray. Moral principles have lost their distinctiveness. <laughs> midnight is the hour when men desperately seek to obey, watch me, the 11th commandment. It is this, thou shalt not get caught. According to the ethic of midnight, the cardinal sin is to be caught, and the cardinal virtue is to get by with it. 
It's all right to lie, but one must lie with real finesse. It's all right to steal if one is so dignified that if caught, the charge becomes embezzlement rather than robbery. It is permissible even to hate if one so dresses his hating in the garments of love that hating appears to be loving. The Darwinian concept of the survival of the fittest has been substituted by a philosophy of the survival of the slickest. This mentality has brought a tragic breakdown of moral standards and the midnight of moral degeneration deepens. Midnight, hear me, hear me, is a confusing hour. When it's difficult to remain faithful. The most inspiring word that the church must speak is that midnight does not long remain. Dr. King went on to say the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never ever become its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become irrelevant in society as a social club without any spiritual or moral authority. If the church, I'm talking about you now, if the church does not participate actively in the struggle for peace and economic justice it will forfeit the loyalty of millions and cause men everywhere to say that it has atrophied its will and then Dr. King concluded with these words but if the church I wish somebody say if the church slap somebody a different color of skin than yours slap them a high five and say but if the church Come on, do it one more time and shout. But if the church will free itself from the shackles of a deadening status quo and recovering its great and historic mission will speak and act fearlessly and insistently in terms of justice and of peace. It will enkindle the imagination of mankind and fire the souls of men imbuing them with a glowing ardent love for truth, justice and peace. Men from far and near will then know that the church is a great fellowship of love Love that provides light and bread for lonely travelers traveling in the darkest of social midnight. I want to talk. I want to talk to you just for a little while about fulfilling the dreams of our fathers. We're going to start off in John chapter 17 and verse 11. You can turn your Bibles there. John chapter 17 and verse 11 where Jesus said, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, praying that you protect them by the power of your name, the name which you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. And then if you want to turn your Bible over to the book of Galatians, Chapter, two, chapter 3 and verse 28, the Apostle Paul admonishes us with these words. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The efforts of the great 
African-American Booker T. Washington helped transform a little-known school called the Tuskegee Institute in one of the leading facilities for black education in America. It was he who said, my part is to help speed the day now fast approaching when there shall not be a northern heart or a southern heart, a black heart and a white heart, but all shall be melted by deeds of sympathy, patience and forbearance into one heart, the great American heart. In the Library of Congress, there hangs a painting that was intended to capture the founding vision of America. It's called The Dawn of the New Millennium. And it is one of the most amazing paintings that I've ever seen. Allow me to take just a moment and describe it to you. The center of the work is an altar mounted high up on a hill. It's clearly intended to be the lush, fruitful, untainted landscape of America. Standing around that altar, which glows with the glory of God, are ministers from every Christian denomination. Those who know the style can easily discern the leaders of Presbyterian, Congregationalist, Quaker, Catholic, Episcopalian churches. The picture suggests that one purpose for America is to be a place where God's presence brings unity to all the varying streams of Christianity. Yet there's more in the painting. At the feet of these Christian leaders, a child plays happily beside a lion. There is obviously a reference to the great prophecies of Isaiah that the Prince of Peace would rule on this earth one day. An African slave is shown, now free and standing nobly erect rather than bent over with his work. If you look beyond the altar to the distant hills, you see the symbols of the nations drawing near. There are the turbaned Arabs and the Native American Indians and discernibly Asian figures all drawing near to the altar of the Lord. There was, this indeed was the founding vision of America. Men dreamed a dream that had been birthed from the heart of God and issued over the sapphire sill of heaven's gate. America would be a land so permeated by biblical truth and righteousness that the glory of God would dwell here. Unity would reign. The nations would come from around the world and see a model of Christian civilization as it had never been seen before. The dream lived in the hearts of the first pilgrims who wrote down in their journals as, as they sailed to the new world in part to introduce the natives of this land to the Prince of Peace. When they arrived, they were not only rescued by the famed Indian Squanto, but they also treated the natives of the region with great kindness. The dream also lived in the heart of John Winthrop, who was the leader of the Puritans. He preached in his famous sermon, a model of Christian charity, that this land was to be a city set upon a hill. He too revealed that God intended this land to be a place of religious unity and racial harmony in service to the cause of Christ around the world. This was the dream of our founders, and it was a dream from God, but it did not prevail long. You see, everyone that settled in America didn't come here with the vision of the glory of God. Some came for wealth, and some came to escape the fruits of their own vices. Some came merely to weep power and some came to build for their own glory. Motives like these distorted men's souls and refashioned the lush provision of God in the new world into mere tools for their own scheming. 
It didn't take long for these lesser motives to prevail in our history. Soon the very Indians whom the Christian forebearers yearned to befriend and convert were treated as enemies to conquer and to contain. In fact, some of the greatest injustices in American history deal specifically with the Native Americans. Yet we as a nation like to pretend that nothing ever happened. Even today, we ignore facts that Native Americans have some of the highest alcohol dependency rates in this nation. In 2002, this group reported the highest substance abuse, the highest substance dependency. And yet Americans, if you asked one on the street, wouldn't be able to tell you that. Recently, we made efforts to acknowledge the misdeeds of our past and work toward a better tomorrow. The Smithsonian National Museum of American Indians and the pending legislation which would issue an apology from our government to the American Indians are in, in, in enormous steps forward in the progress and to get our nation back on course. Of course, we cannot forget how the forefathers soon transformed the lives of Africans by selling them in the marketplace to work the land as property of Christian owners. It seems early in our nation's history that the dream of a land in which the diverse races would come together and live in righteousness and respect toward one another in harmony began to dwindle and to die. Our forebearers soon began questioning, hear me, whether black men had souls. Let's not forget. And whether or not American Indians could even be converted by the blood of Christ. So began the legacy of racism in America, as old as human sin and as tragically destructive as the history of great civilizations reveal, all in contradiction to the glorious vision of our founding fathers. I remember my first journey into the deep south. We took a family vacation in the mid-1960s, and my parents and my sister and I piled into the old Buick that we had at that time and headed for what seemed to me to be a foreign country. I remember seeing cotton fields as far as the eye could see down through Mississippi and Alabama and the Carolinas over into Georgia and down into Florida. Watch those fields being picked by African Americans, including very small children, barely knee high. I noticed their fingers and hands were bleeding And I wondered how they were able to stand under the scorching sun for so many hours. I thought of how it made the back of my legs ache when I just had to pick a few green beans from my mom and dad's backyard garden. And I couldn't imagine how those people must have felt after laboring in the fields day after day. I remember stopping at a service station. You remember back then they actually provided service. I remember seeing the signs on the three restrooms. White men white women and then the other the third was designated by only one word beginning with the letter n this was my introduction to racism in america now many years later we comfort ourselves that things are far different america has been changed by a civil war and by the civil rights movement and equal opportunity legislation president george w bush's cabinet is the most diverse in american history and i think we ought to thank god for that 
clearly non-whites have ascended to the most premier positions of power in our nation. Yet I am still sadly forced to report that racism is far from dead in our country. How I wish I could say otherwise. How I wish I could report that we had learned from the tragedy of our legacy on race hatred. How I wish I could announce to you that we had heeded the words of William Wilberforce or Abraham Lincoln or Booker T. Washington or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the other hundreds of others who have called us to a higher vision. Instead, I am forced today to report that racism is alive and well in America and alive and well in the American church. We all know it's true. Look around you. The Ku Klux Klan still exists. Black men have been dragged behind pickup trucks to their deaths within the last decade. And a neo-skinhead movement has kept the fires of race hatred burning in our nation. Federal programs like affirmative action have had some benefit, but they've also engendered deep resentments. We have only to look at the legacy of O.J. Simpson and Rodney King incidents to see that we have not come as far as we might have dreamed. Somebody shout, but we are on our way. Sunday morning is still the most racially segregated time of the week in America. And I must say that if it's true that as the church goes, so goes the nation, then we are in for some trouble when it comes to matters of racial harmony. I hope I've got some preachers listening to me today. There are very few thoroughly integrated churches in America when you consider them a part of the whole of the total number of congregations in the United States. I want to make an announcement today. I'm the proudest pastor in America. I'm privileged to pastor a great church with great diversity, with thousands of blacks and whites and Hispanics and Asians worshiping together passionately. Well, if you're happy about it, give God a praise. But I must say that there is an unfulfilled mandate in the area of race. We have not arisen to the destiny of our nation that we should and we never will as God has defined our purpose until we see the forces of animosity and hatred and the walls of division destroyed by the church and the crush of righteousness and love. This is not just a vision for the church, but the church will have to lead the way. It is a vision for the nation as a whole, but you and I are not going to escape our responsibility to lead the way for racial reconciliation. It will begin at the house of God or it will not begin at all. I cannot stress enough how urgent the need is. Do you realize, listen to this, do you realize how our population is changing? I bet you that you don't. I bet you that you don't know that Hispanic birth rates are five times that of blacks and nearly one and a half times that of whites in this nation. Five times and one and a half times. In 100 years, my great-grandchildren may well live in a majority Hispanic America. With increasing immigration to this country and with the white population ever decreasing through abortion 
and purposefully low birth rates, our nation will have to learn racial harmony and respect or we will have a future filled with the violent race wars that the skinhead groups now angrily predict. Please allow me just for a few moments to show you how a vision for racial unity grows organically out of the B-I-B-L-E. I must do this since it is scripture that has for so long been distorted to make a case for the very racism that threatens to ruin our nation. It would seem that no one could ever make a case from the Bible for hating a man because of the color of his skin. The kingdom of God is so powerfully depicted as a celebration of God's glorious human diversity that it's hard to understand how some have distorted that message. Unless someone tries to make a peculiar case for racial division or slavery from an obscure passage about Shem, Ham, and Japheth in the Old Testament, I cannot really understand or find anything that supports hating or separating from a man because of his race. Clearly, racism defended with the Bible is a perversion of truth. When I open my Bible, I find a vision for racial unity springing out of almost every page. Not only is it obvious that God created every race and color to reflect his glory, but he even told his chosen people, the Jews, that they were meant to show the nations God's glory. In other words, the Jews were chosen in part because God wanted them to draw others to him. This is why God said that the strangers who carried captive forces, his forces, and the foreigners who entreated his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem would find deliverance on Mount Zion, just as his chosen people, the Jews, had drank on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was meant to become the united nations of the kingdom of God. I submit to you today that you and I, and churches just like this one, are determined by God to be the united nations of the kingdom of God. And when I speak of races, I'm speaking of ethnicities. And that's why I want to put my foot down, push my plate back, and point my finger under the leadership of the church. And I want to announce not only do we not want a white America and a black America, we don't want a white church and a black church. Are you doing all right? Are you doing all right? Because we're about to step into some stuff now. Are you ready? Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. And they sung a new song saying, You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred, out of every tongue, out of every people, and out of every nation. Jesus died for every tribe. Jesus died for every tongue. Jesus died for every people and for every nation. His church is meant to represent this redemptive activity. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, Jesus tells us, Go ye therefore, teach all nations, ethnicities, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. 
Even the great commission given to the church was a plan for men of one tribe to go to other tribes and teach them how to reach still other tribes. If Christians lived the great commission, churches would be the most racially diverse places on the planet. I know this last statement's radical, so let me give you an illustration. Have you ever looked at the Bible's description of the church at Antioch from a racial perspective? Look in your Bible at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. When you get it, you'll find that it describes the leadership of that church, saying, and I quote, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, this is just a kind of list that people usually casually just slip by. But let's look at it a little more closely. Remember that these people were the leaders of a Christian church. Consider this. Acts 4.36, we are told that Barnabas was a Jew from the island of Cyprus. Simeon apparently was black, the name Niger, after all, being interpreted as the black. Lucius was from the African region of Cyrene, though we don't know the color of his skin. Manaean was a Greek who grew up in a future king's home. Saul was from Tarsus in what is now modern Turkey then known as Asia Minor. So notice these things. Among the pastoral leadership of the church in Antioch, there was a Cypriot, a Greek, two Africans, and an Asian. This diverse team of men led a church in a region that is now part of Syria, yet none of the leadership were from that region. This means that the church at Antioch was led by a multiracial, multinational team, none of whom were local. What an amazing example of the kind of church the Great Commission should produce in 2005. About to freak you out now. I also want you to get a sense of the way that racism angers God. Slap somebody that's a different color than you and, and say, God don't like it. God doesn't like a black church and a white church and a Hispanic church and an Asian church. I can prove to you that God doesn't like it. I'm going to show you the place where Jesus got more angry than any other place in your Bible. I want this reality to sink into your souls and into the soul of our nation. If it did, it would transform our culture. So let me take just a moment and show you an example in the Bible of how racism angered our Lord. And then we'll return to the question of racism in our society. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, you ought to mark it well. We have the amazing story of Jesus clearing the temple. Now, you probably know this tale very well. Jesus entered the temple area and noticed that men were exchanging money, selling sacrificial animals, and carrying merchandise through the temple courts. Immediately, Jesus began 
driving these men out while proclaiming, Mark eleven seventeen, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Throughout the history of the church, some have concluded that Jesus was upset with the merchants doing business in a holy place. And there's certainly some manner of truth to that, but it's not the whole story. So allow me to suggest to you another interpretation. Those merchants were doing business that the law of God required. A man who was going to tithe had to change his local currency into temple currency. A man who lived far away from Jerusalem was not required to bring the animals he was going to sacrifice along with him on his journey. He could simply carry money and then exchange his money for temple money and buy the sacrificial animals when he arrived at the temple. So the business we see happening in the temple courts was allowed if it was conducted honestly. Now it may have been that people were cheating people out there, probably some evidence of that, uh, cheating their customers. Jesus did say that his father's house was made a den of thieves. But this may not be the only reason. In fact, I submit to you it was not the only reason that Jesus got angered. I think there was another reason that Jesus became enraged. I think that Jesus may also have been grieved because the merchants had set up business in the courts, which were the only places that the Gentiles had to pray. You may remember that there was a part of the temple called the court of the Gentiles. It was here, according to tradition, that the merchants did their business. This would mean that the merchants were interfering with the worship of the Gentiles. It is most likely that they were doing this because they despised the Gentiles and thought them unclean and unworthy of consideration in a temple, after all, built by whites. I mean Jews. In other words, they were racists. When Jesus saw the racial callousness of the heart of the merchants, he became angry and drove them out while quoting from Isaiah 56, 6, and 7, which says, listen to this, here's what he really quoted, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship him, all who have Keep, keep all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who would hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Hey, thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, I want to invite you to tell someone in your life about the podcast. Hope you'll do it today. Head on over to iTunes and leave a review. Share it on your social networks for me. Really helps me get the word out. I'd love for you to connect with me on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. No easier way for me to minister to you every day and throughout the day and for us to join together in faith as God moves in and through your life. You can find links to all my pages at rodparsley.com. God bless you now, and I hope you'll listen again soon.